Will you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 53? We come this morning to verses 4, 5, and 6, Isaiah chapter 53. We have been considering together the suffering servant of the Lord, and we began back in chapter 52, verse 13, and now this morning, verses 4 through 6 of chapter 53. We want to consider together the pierced and the crushed servant, the pierced and the crushed servant. So verse 4, chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. May God bless to us the reading of his inspired word, and let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, We have lifted up our hearts, our voices this morning in joy, in adoration, and in praise. And now we come to this somber passage from the prophet Isaiah written so long ago. A passage that reminds us so vividly, so potently of Jesus and what he did for us. A passage that indeed speaks of Christ. We desire this morning that we might, as we look into these verses, lay for ourselves a foundation of what it meant for Jesus to be our substitute, to take our place. And as we have just sung in our hymns, in our stead, he did all this for us. So help us this morning as we listen to your word, as your word is proclaimed. May God the Holy Spirit take this word and proclaim it into our hearts and minds that our lives might be changed, that our love for Jesus Christ might be deepened, that our service might be enriched, because we serve such a glorious Christ. So we ask for your blessing now upon the preaching of your word, and we commit all things to you, and ask it in Jesus' name, and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Now, there's no question that in these verses before us we have what I have been trying to or attempting to get to finally is this great doctrine of the penal substitution of the Lord Jesus Christ. This doctrine of uh, a penalty that is paid by someone who is completely innocent, someone who is guiltless in and of themselves, someone who is blameless in and of themselves, who stands in the place or who takes the place of those for whom he makes atonement or makes sacrifice. There's no question that this doctrine is important, the doctrine of a penal substitution. It is all that is the atonement, the atonement, the propitiation Jesus made, is wrapped up in for whom was it made, and as we will see later on in Isaiah chapter 53, the many are made righteous, There is an effective application of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, as we come to these verses, I want you to keep this in your mind, this great doctrine of a penal substitute. Or to put it another way, a very simple way, Jesus died 
in your stead on your behalf. And how crucial and important that is for every Christian to know and to love and to appreciate. One of the things you discover immediately in these verses 4 through 6 is that it is all about substitution. For example, if you look at verse 4, verse 4 says he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Verse 5 says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And verse 6 tells us finally that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, if those verses don't speak to you about substitution, then I don't know what does. Because you will notice, for example, he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. So there's no question here that here is someone, and here are others, and this other, this someone here, this servant, has taken the place on behalf of these others, and what should have happened to them, happened to him. He's the substitute. He took our place. He endured, he went through whatever it was that he did on our behalf, on behalf of others, not because of himself but because of you, because of me, because of others. And you can see at the end of verse 11, for example, it says, He shall bear their iniquities. He shall bear their iniquities. End of verse 12, He bore the sin of many. So He does something, the servant, on behalf of others. Let me remind you that this is the fourth servant song. There are four servant songs. This is the final servant song. And the prophet Isaiah has been trying to define from chapter 42 all the way through here to chapter 53 the servant and what it means to be the servant of Yahweh, to be the servant of the Lord. And on one hand, the servant is described in glorious, exalted terms, like for instance in chapter 52, verse 13. He shall be exalted, he shall be high, he shall be lifted up. And so there's this great exalted one, this great... A servant who is high and, and lifted up. And then in a moment, in chapter 52, verse 14, we are swept down to the pits of humiliation. The servant is brutalized, is marred beyond his appearance, beyond comprehension, uh, and so on. And so the prophet Isaiah soars to glorious heights and then he sinks down to these depraved depths, if I can call them that pointing out in every servant song that we are the recipients of all that the servant does. The interests of the servant of the Lord are for us. We interest Him. Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. Whatever He did, He did not do for Himself. He did for others. He did for us as Isaiah wants, to, wants us to know. When God called Moses and God spoke to Joshua when Joshua was about to enter the, the promised land, you remember how God addressed to them, I want you, Moses and Joshua, take off the sandals that are on your feet. Why should they take the sandals off their feet? Because the ground on which you stand is what? Holy ground. You're in the presence of God. 
You're in face to face, as it were, with, with God and in His glory. And so Moses, take those sandals off, because those sandals represent uncleanness. They represent defilement, the defilement of life. They represent your sinfulness. Take them off. Remove them from me. You're on holy ground. Joshua, you do the same. When we come to this passage, Isaiah chapter 53, that's exactly how I feel. That I can see that there's an uncleanness about us. I mean, it's the language of my griefs, my sorrows, my transgressions, my iniquities, and so on. It's all about my sinfulness and his sinlessness, the servant. So I'm, I'm taken to this place, this, this holy ground place. And of course, we see as Christians that the cross is that place that is holy ground. Because it was there that the great transaction, the great redemption was attained by Jesus for us. The great shepherd giving his life for the sheep sacrificing Himself on behalf of others, that they might live, that they might have life, that they might be forgiven, that they might be free. That's this doctrine of substitution. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And yet it's filled with pathos. And it's filled with pain for the servant, for Messiah, for Jesus. We are entering uh, into this holy ground, if I can put it like that, it reminds me of the chorus we often sing, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary, at the cross. And so this is where we come this morning. Isn't this the theology of John chapter 1 verse 14? The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. And John says, as he describes Jesus, he says, we have seen His glory, the glory as of the only begotten One of the Father, full of grace and truth. So as John looks upon Jesus, and you remember how John the Baptist later on would describe Jesus, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That prompted two disciples, Andrew, one of them, to follow Jesus and to ask him, where are you staying? Come and see, Jesus says. And from that moment on, Andrew becomes a disciple and goes and finds Simon, his brother, and Peter becomes a disciple, and James and John become disciples. Philip and Nathaniel become disciples, and the rest of them, they follow the Lamb. They follow this one that's pointed out to them. This is what uh, Isaiah the prophet is doing. He wants to, in these verses, put his finger on the precise point that he wants to make. So for instance, in, first of all in chapter 52 verses 13 through 15, he talks about the startling and the sprinkling servant. And you remember last week, we looked at the despised and the rejected servant in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 53. But now we are confronted with the pierced and the crushed servant who is before us. I take those words, by the way, as you see them in the text, right? Verse 5. He was pierced. He was crushed. He's the pierced and the crushed servant of the Lord. So I want to bring before you, if I can, if I'm able this morning, to point out the pierced and the crushed servant in three ways. 
I want to talk first of all about the servant's personal suffering. Verse 4. The servant's personal suffering. And then, second, in verse 5, I want to point out the servant's penal sufferings. And then in verse 6, I want to point out the servant's particular sufferings. I make a distinction, by the way, between personal sufferings and particular sufferings, particular on behalf of others, personal, the things that the servant underwent himself. So let's look then. Will you look with me, verse 4? The personal sufferings. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. You notice immediately there is this fact of identity, of identification. I mean, who are we talking about here? Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Surely he has. Who are we talking about? Well, we've been saying all along we're talking about the servant, right? The servant of the Lord. And you remember how chapter 52 verse 13 introduced him. Behold my servant. So this is about the servant. So when Isaiah writes, he has borne our griefs, he means the servant has borne our griefs. You'll notice in verse 11 that he is called the righteous one. The righteous one, the servant, or my servant. He is in verse 1 of chapter 53, the arm of the Lord, representing power, sovereign power, sovereign strength, like it was the arm of the Lord that brought Israel out of Egypt's bondage. This servant is the arm of the Lord. This servant is the righteous one. This servant is the one who bore our griefs, carried our sorrows. And so consistently throughout the whole prophet, uh, prophecy of uh, chapter 53, you have this personal pronoun, he, 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 he did this, he did that, he did this on behalf of others. We then can say, I think without exception, that we're talking about a person. There are some people who confuse the servant of Yahweh as the nation of Israel. But the one thing that immediately removes us from thinking that is that atonement is made by this one on behalf of others. And certainly it's the nation that he's thinking about who are atoned for by this other person. So the nation does not make atonement for the nation. It is this servant who makes atonement on behalf of others. In fact, modern Jewish thought uh, for centuries has been that this promotes the idea that the servant is uh, the nation. And interestingly enough, in their gatherings together, they never read Isaiah 53. It causes great trouble to them because it's personal, isn't it? He, 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 he. And you must, if you're going to be a good student of the Bible, identify who the he is. And there's no question, of course, that we're talking about the servant. The servant is therefore Messiah. And what we are introduced in the Old Testament to is a Messiah who is going to suffer. And yet at the same time, Isaiah himself, you can get or sense at times that he is bewildered by the fact that Messiah is glorious. And then on the other hand, Messiah is degraded and suffers. And yet Simon Peter points out in his epistle that this is what the prophets we're seeking to do. Couldn't quite grasp how you marry sufferings and glory together in a Messiah that they all long to come and deliver them from their oppressions and so on. 
So the servant is Messiah. And there's no question when you get to the New Testament that Jesus himself claims Messiahship, doesn't he? He never disputes the title Christ. He accepts the title Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the promised one. So we simply say then, when we read these verses, that the He that is spoken of by Isaiah the prophet here is none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. And if we were to spend the time, and I hope to do this a little bit later on uh, in uh, the week's time to come, is to look at how Jesus is this servant. Right now I'm just making broad applications from the text, from what Isaiah himself says. So we can see that this person, this he, this one that he's talking about here, suffers. There's no question the language is right. Pierced. Crushed. That's the language of violence that the servant underwent. And what we also notice is not only the sufferings of the servant, but that the sufferings of the servant are on behalf of other people. He undergoes what he goes through because of others. They are the legitimate ones that should go through the suffering. All those other ones are the rightful heirs of this wrath, of this degradation. But the servant comes along and says no, and takes their place. So that the, the completely guilty, the, blame, the, the ones who are blameworthy, who are, who are filled with iniquity and transgression, they go free. Because he takes all their transgressions and all their iniquities. And you'll notice in verse 5, his sufferings then are for, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. His sufferings are for others. Verse 4, they are because of others. You see that, don't you? Our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, and so on. Now you know, this verse 4 is in the prophet's mind a continuation of what he said or suggested in verse 3 when he says that He was despised and rejected by men. Notice the language now. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then when he gets to verse 4, he switches it around, doesn't he? And he puts our griefs first and our sorrows second. And all he's doing there is just using a device to draw you in that I'm still talking about the same person. The one who was despised and rejected by men. The one who was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why? Because it was our sorrows and our griefs that he bore and underwent the suffering of. Or to put it another way, in verse 3, he is surely acquainted right with our griefs and our sorrows. Because it says, he is a man of sorrows. Now you know, we all like cheerful, joyful people, don't we? If ever you meet someone who's miserable or morose, Stands out, doesn't it? Just like a joyful person stands out to you. You much prefer the joyful person. You much prefer the cheerful person. Makes you feel good. Makes you feel better. But if you meet someone who's always downcast and woe is me and miserable, you kind of feel that and you have to struggle to extricate yourself from being like that. Because misery breeds misery. And so, here we are finding ourselves that the misery of one, we are confronted by it. 
And we should sense the importance of that and the humiliating factor that the prophet Isaiah is considering. Will you notice in verse 4, he did something, the servant. For instance, it says, he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. And those words to bear, or he has borne our, our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, those words to bear and to carry, they simply point out that the griefs and the sorrows became his, became the servants. So that in one sense you could say he, he is sharing on one level, but it's not that, is it? It's removing from us our griefs and sorrows, and all of our griefs and sorrows he takes unto himself. And so this is a remarkable work that the servant does. And I like the little word, surely. This is what he did, is what Isaiah says. I want you to see it. I want you to look at it. I want you to comprehend it. I want you to pay attention to what he did. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. These sorrows and these griefs are not his to begin with, are they? No, they're ours. They're our griefs. They're our sorrows. Now imagine if you're walking down the road and you see a man and he's got a heavy load on his back and he's bent over double and he's almost falling to his knees and you rush up to him and you say, let me help you with that. And you take that burden and you put it on your own shoulders and you carry, you bear the burden. He doesn't have it anymore. The burden has been removed from him. The, the weight that bowed him down is taken off and you now are bowed down and you bear the burden. That's the idea of substitution, isn't it? That's me helping someone else, taking their burdens. They are not left with burdens, but I am now carrying the burden. It's pure substitution in its most pristine form. That's what Isaiah wants you to see. When he says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's what he did. He took them all. He took all of them to himself. They were yours. But the servant comes along and says, I'll take them. And you experience freedom, relief from the burden. This is like Christian in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, isn't it? When he comes to the cross and that burden that has troubled him, the, the weight of sin falls from his back and rolls down into the sepulcher, into the grave because of the one who bore the, the load and has removed it, carried it. We really cannot comprehend the cross, the depths of the cross, the darkness of the cross, the pain of the cross, the sufferings, the shame. The degradation. We have no idea of what Jesus really underwent. We can sense it when we read Scripture. We sense it here in the servant of Yahweh who suffers. And so this is, it, it becomes very difficult, I think, from a preacher's point of view to try and enter into the pain, into the depths of the pain, to explain that, to get that across. Even in the reading of it, we all might not see the depths of what we're talking about, the degradation of the servant's suffering. I don't possess the ability, I think, at all to convey the depth, to convey the pathos that we find in these verses. The pain, the anguish. In fact, when you read the Gospels and you see Jesus on the cross, you know He's suffering, but there He is alone. 
and darkness covers the scene. Silence reigns. And yet God is brutalizing his son with your sin and mine in that time. You can't comprehend that. You can't comprehend what it's like for the father to take the load, the mass of your sins and put them on Jesus. And then turn his face away. Cutting his son off from fellowship. All that, that inter-Trinitarian affection and love broken because of my sin and your sin. You can't comprehend that, can you? Really. You can see it. You can feel it. You can sense it. But who can really comprehend what Jesus did for you? What Jesus did for me? Oh, what a, what a wonderful servant this servant is going to prove to be in every aspect of what he does on behalf of those for whom he does it. You see, this is not a passage to be questioned. This is a passage to be believed. This is a passage that determines what you really believe about Jesus, about Messiah, about Christ and His sufferings, the servant. This is a passage that ought to utterly humble us and break us, right? And, and stir up within us, I want to believe that. I want to know that. I want to trust. The one who did this so completely for me. See, here's a passage that exists for you to believe. To say, yeah, that's for me. I believe it. He did that for me. Now, there are some translations that say, our griefs are our sicknesses. So, I want to show you this. If you go to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew chapter 8, So Matthew chapter 8, so we can just look at verse 14. Jesus has just healed the servant of the centurion, right? Jesus is not even there, he just speaks the word and at a great distance the man is healed that very moment, right? But verse 14, when Jesus enters Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law, that's Peter's mother-in-law, lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with a word. And he healed all who were sick. Now look what the text says. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. This is, this is what, where people then take, for instance, that what is spoken of here is our, our health, our sickness, our disease. Matthew's context is a context of healing, isn't it? Cast out many demons, healed everyone who came to him, healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, healed the centurion servant. Healing, healing, healing is everywhere. And Matthew writes that it's explained by Isaiah chapter 53 when he quotes from it. But when you read Isaiah, this passage... Isaiah is not thinking of physical illness, is he? He's thinking of spiritual sickness, spiritual illness. So when Isaiah uses our griefs, our sorrows, it's in relation to sin that Isaiah is thinking about it because he goes on to talk about our transgressions and our iniquities and so on. 
So Matthew then, what's Matthew about? Matthew is simply about the removing of the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin is sickness and disease and all of those things. They exist because of sin. Isaiah gets to the very heart of the matter. The problem is sin. There are consequences to sin, which we all have because we are sinful and sinners and we practice sin. And those consequences are removed because the sin is dealt with. So Matthew is quite right to apply it to the effects of sin that are seen everywhere. Peter's mother-in-law is sick and all those demon-oppressed and healed, uh, those that were sick, he heals them all. So Matthew talks about the removal of the consequences of sin, but Isaiah talks about the sin itself. Surely that's exactly what Simon Peter means in 1 Peter 2 verse 24, right? He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. What's, Isaiah th- uh, what's Peter thinking about? He's thinking about Isaiah. He's thinking about what did Jesus bear in himself on the tree? He bore in himself our sins. And by doing that, he deals with the consequences of our sin as well. And so here we find that verse 4 in Isaiah 53 is about spiritual sickness, not physical sickness, but spiritual sickness or sin. The charismatic movement and the word faith movement have all taken this, I think, totally out of context. Which also raises the question, well, why isn't there ongoing healing then? Why isn't there this constant healing? I mean, I believe, you believe, your sins can be forgiven, and they are forgiven by our Lord Jesus Christ. But it appears that if Jesus died for your sickness, you're still sick. Now, yes, I know we still sin, but you know that your sins are forgiven. And you can enter into fellowship and be at peace with God when you confess your sins. Well, how about if you confess your illness and confess your sickness? Is that going to fix it? No, it doesn't. Because it's not talking about physical illness or health or sickness. It's talking about spiritual things. Sin is the question. Sin is the problem. So the thought primarily in Isaiah 53 is of our sinful condition, our spiritual sickness, and then subsequently all consequences are associated and connected with that. And you notice when it says to bear our griefs, or he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, that doesn't mean that Messiah or the servant becomes a fellow sufferer with us. You carry the load and I'll carry some of the load. That's not what, that's not what Isaiah means. That we understand that. He bore the sin that is the cause of all of our evil consequences that come to us. And in that sense, he becomes totally our substitute. Our substitute. Now the one thing you know about Jesus is that he truly entered into human experience, didn't he? Yet without sin. He entered into humanity without sin. He was sinless. Can you imagine what that must have been like for the only sinless man to walk amongst every single human being that he ever encountered, he ever talked to, he ever touched, or just filled with sin. And he is so different, isn't he? Clean, blameless, innocent, pure, sinless. And yet when he goes to the cross... The unimaginable horror of all of that sin, your sins, my sins, 
on him. And then God unleashes his wrath because it pleased the Lord, as Isaiah says, to crush him, to bruise him. It pleased God to do that. So you can go free and I can go free. Here is Jesus then. Here is the servant. He's a man. He's a person. And he personally suffers, doesn't he? He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. And he substitutes himself in our place under the retribution, the condemnation of God so that those people, our griefs and our sorrows, for whom he made atonement, go free, are forgiven. Isn't the gospel glorious? Isn't the gospel beautiful? It's a pure substitution by Jesus for you. Totally, completely. And notice verse 4, it continues, doesn't it? Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, the prophet says. So notice how, how Isaiah uh, draws our attention to our response to the bearing of our griefs and the carrying of our sorrows. We look, at, we look at him bearing griefs and sorrows and we might say to ourselves, well, he must have done something wrong to come under such judgment, to come under such punishment. He, he must be guilty in and of himself to experience this kind of striking, smitten by God and afflicted. That's exactly how Job's three friends thought, right, about Job and his sufferings. Well, Job, you must have done something wrong because look what God's doing to you. And of course, Job was blameless and righteous before God. And so Job's friends, typical human fashion, right? Like we would do. Just say, you must have done something wrong for that to be happening to you, Job. And that's what Isaiah is saying here. He says, we esteemed him stricken. Why is he stricken? Well, he must have done something wrong to be stricken. Why is he smitten by God and afflicted? Well, he must have done something wrong. He must be guilty himself. But as we know, not all suffering, by the way. Job's suffering is his fault. But this suffering is on behalf of others, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, and so on. And notice, not just stricken, but smitten by God and afflicted. And those, those words, all of them convey the idea of violence. Violence by God. Now look, at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, violence is done to him by Roman soldiers. Violence is done to him by the Jews, the Pharisees and scribes. Violence is, is done to, to Christ. There's no question about that. But that's not how, how Isaiah the prophet is thinking here. He's thinking about what God did to the son. What God does to the servant. He strikes him. He smites him. So I can see the depths of my griefs, my sorrows. But you take it another level and say that it's God who did that to his son because of you. Then that's a different story. And that's exactly what the servant did. And that's exactly what God did to his son. We believe from our perspective, he deserved it. That's what Isaiah is saying. We looked at him and he deserved it. We esteemed him not. And so verse 4 then I think conveys very personally the personal sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I must hurry on. Notice verse 5. In verse 5, Isaiah the prophet goes to the very heart 
of the sufferings, right? He suffered because of sin. Not just grief or sorrow in the language that that carries, but, but he suffers now for transgressions and iniquities. Everything that is laid or that happens to the servant is laid at our feet. We are responsible for what happened. Yes, God struck him, but it's because of my sin and your sin that God struck him. And not only that, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. And you notice that verse 5 stands in whatever translation you may have, doesn't matter what translation you have, verse 5 stands as a contrast to verse 4. How do we know? The little word but. So verse 5, but. But. So we did this, we esteemed him not. We esteemed him stricken or smitten of God and afflicted, but... Contrast, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. It's as if Isaiah said, look, here's one level, and here's another level. And he takes us deeper into the substitution. Notice in verse five, sorry, in verse four, you have this erroneous opinion that people might have had. Well, he suffered for his own sake. He, he suffered because he deserved it. No. Verse 5 gives us the real reason for his suffering, the real reason why he was despised, and the real reason why he was rejected. So verse 5, what happened to the servant? And why did that happen to the servant? Well, let me just show you briefly. Look, look at verse 5. Verse 5 says he was pierced. Why was he pierced? For our transgressions. Verse 5 says he was crushed. Why was he crushed? For our iniquities. Verse 5 says that he was chastised, disciplined. Why? For our peace. Notice verse 5, he was wounded. Why? For our healing. All of those things there happened to him, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded for our sakes, on behalf of us, because of our transgressions, iniquities, our peace and our healing. This is, if I could use the words, pure substitution. Right? Pure substitution. It's the idea of exchange. Notice the use of our, 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 right? This is the innocent servant for the guilty ones who have transgressions and have iniquities. Let me ask you, do you have any transgressions? Uh -huh. Do you have any sins? Do you have any iniquities? Think of what's behind you. And think of right now, sin. There's not a person who does not sin. No one can say, I have no sin. Nobody can say, I don't sin. I've never sinned. Oh, we're sinful, right? We're sinful. In fact, if we sin against God, we recognize that the way to cure that is to go to Him and confess our sins. And when you confess your sins, what are you essentially doing? You are claiming the work of Jesus for you on your behalf. And God responds to that and is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. It all goes back to Jesus. It all goes back to the cross. Everything about your sin, your transgressions and iniquities goes to the cross. You must see them in the light of the cross, in the light of the servant. Did you know that Eve, the mother of all living, Eve used this idea in Genesis chapter 4 and verse 25 with the birth of Seth? Because this is what she said, God has appointed for me another offspring. It's one of the magnificent, least appreciated verses in maybe all of Scripture, because it points immediately to what God had said in Genesis 3.15 about the striking of the servant or Messiah. 
and his crushing of Satan and the offspring, right? The promised offspring. He, she says, God has appointed for me another offspring. Abel is gone. She doesn't say, well, Cain will do. No, because Cain won't do. Because Cain is the man of the world. Cain is the man of sin. Cain is secular, unspiritual. No, God has appointed for me another offspring. And then she says this, instead of Abel. In exchange for Abel. In the place of Abel. That's the idea when she says, instead of Abel, because Cain killed him. You have the same idea, by the way, conveyed in Numbers chapter 3, where where God says, I will take all the Levites to myself so that the firstborn don't have to die. So it's an idea of redemption or exchange. I take the firstborn, I take the Levite, sorry, and the firstborn can go free and all the cattle can go free. I take them for myself. Take all the Levites instead of all the firstborn, in place of the firstborn. Isn't that Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21 right? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For our sake, for our sake, God did this to his son, made him to be sin for us. God, smitten of God, right? Now let me show you, there are two big ideas here in verse 5. First of all, there is our guilt before God. Because look, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's sin. So we're guilty of sin. And then look what what we have. We have secondly, God's grace. Not just there's our guilt and nothing happens, but there's God's grace accompanying our guilt. Because look what He says. He was chastised for our peace and wounded for our healing. So on the one hand in the verse, there is this this guiltiness on our, our transgressions, our sins. But then you see the grace of God coming to the guilty. God chastises His Son, the servant, so that I am at peace and He wounds Him so that I am healed. Notice the servant's part. He says he is pierced. That's the idea of piercing through something, right? This is an ongoing piercing to bring about a violent death. This is a piercing to achieve in the end result death. He was pierced. We know that the centurion pierced his side at the cross. But this is, this is everything that happened to him. My transgressions are driving Christ to death. And then he says he was crushed. That's like an overwhelming load, a burden of sins placed on him as if he is being trampled to death. That's what Jesus is going through in the cross. Violence, trampling, to bring about a violent death. And what caused such unbearable suffering? What caused such horrific suffering of the servant? Notice our transgressions, our iniquities. What are transgressions? Transgressions are willful rebellions. Do you ever willfully disobeyed God? Willful rebellions, a breach of trust. But what are iniquities? Iniquities are your perversions, your moral evil, your moral culpability, your guilt because of the moral evil. Our iniquities, our transgressions. You can't escape this. 
You can walk out that door and you can go home and you still can't get away that this is what the servant did. You still can't escape 2,000 years ago of history. The cross. You still can't get away from the cross. In fact, the cross defines all human history, doesn't it? All history before and all history afterwards. Our history this morning. Defined by the cross of Jesus. Now you see, dear congregation, Isaiah wants himself and he wants us to understand that there is an ever-flowing fountain of vileness and of unmitigated evil within us. Naturally. Naturally. It's just who you are. Who we are. So Isaiah gives us a picture of our depravities. And he gives us a picture of our destitution. Our depravity, we are guilty before God. Our destitution, we are helpless before God. Unable to cleanse ourselves. Must remain condemned. Must remain in guilt. Must remain under condemnation. Unless someone can be found who can stand in the breach. Someone who's not like us. Someone who's completely innocent. That's the servant that Isaiah is talking about. And so this servant comes along and he says, I'll take the place of all of those. I will take their place. And he can do that because he has no sin and no guilt in and of himself. Now the one thing about transgressions and iniquities, they alienate us from God, don't they? That's what they do. They separate us from God. But this is what I love about verse 5. He suddenly gives hope, doesn't he, with grace. The grace of the Lord. The grace of God. Because he says, the second part of verse 5, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So he was chastised with my chastisement, what should have been my punishment necessary, and the result was he achieves peace. Right? Peace with God. And not only that, that's really reconciliation. So what did, what did the servant achieve? He achieved reconciliation. He achieved peace with God. You can't even bring yourself to be at peace with God because by nature we are enemies of God. You need to be brought to God. It's only the servant who brings these people to God. And so he, as Ephesians tells us, chapter 2, verse 14 and verse 16, he himself is our peace. He has reconciled us to God through the cross. Jesus reconciled us. To God through the cross. And not only this, but notice by his wounding or by his stripes, we are healed. Redemption brings forgiveness. Not just reconciliation, but forgiveness of your sin. With his wounds, by his stripes, we are healed. So at the cost or by the price of his wounding, I am healed. I am forgiven. I am saved. I am cleansed by what he has done. Now, if you have the New American Standard Version, it'll say by his scourging. By his scourging. That's quite a legitimate translation, by the way. Because by his wounds, by his stripes, how were they caused? By the scourging that Jesus underwent. What is this? This reminds you surely of the lacerations that are opened up on the back of Jesus Christ. The lacerations by a Roman terrible weapon, right? A weapon that is, that is like a cat of nine tails that has interwoven on every tail bits of lead and bits of bone. And then as it is strikes the person's back, it is pulled down, cuts into the flesh of the victim. 
Those are the wounds of Jesus. His scourging, right? Every lash, every cut, every blow, Jesus says, I did that for you. I took your place. Now you know the horror of that is beyond, is beyond us. I mean, Isaiah's already hinted at his appearance. was more marred than any man, right? From what? From this kind of treatment that our Lord Jesus underwent. So you define, you find, I should say, Psalm 129 and verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This is not just a light scourging. This is a massive scourging. This is the hatred of man poured into every blow. And usually, scourging could go up to 39 lashes. If you survived Roman scourging, that was incredible. But what was left was flesh torn to pieces. Is it any wonder that Jesus cannot carry his cross? Is it any wonder that another man must come and carry the cross for Jesus? Isaiah 50, third servant song. Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard and I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. So what is this? Some people are guilty here. People are guilty. Transgressions, iniquities, right? So verse 5 teaches us that the penalty for this kind of sin, transgressions, is death, right? And so the servant bears the penalty on behalf of others, on behalf of those who are guilty and deserve that death themselves. But you know the wonderful thing about this? He did that so that you can receive grace. He was chastised for our peace. And this healing in verse 5, by his wounds we are healed, is spiritual restoration in addition to spiritual reconciliation. We are reconciled, we are at peace with God, but here we are restored by his wounds, we are healed. It's as if they don't exist. His wounds have healed us. We are restored. And so that brings me finally, if those are the penal sufferings of the servant to the particular sufferings of the servant. What do I mean by the particular sufferings of the servant? I mean, for whom did he do it? Who are the others? Who are the our, 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 right? All the way through. Well, look at verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So when he says, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities, our peace, our healing, it's we who are like sheep. That it was done for. All we like sheep have gone astray, gone our own way. What does that mean? If that's talking about a willing waywardness, right? You know, we have not turned to God and we have not turned to His ways and we have not walked in His ways is what Isaiah is say, saying. We have gone our own way because of what we are like naturally. We don't love God naturally. We don't like God naturally. We hate God naturally. That's what Isaiah is saying. That's what a person is like who's not a Christian. They hate God. Now they may say to you, oh, I would never hate God. But then do you love Him? Is everything that you do for Him for His glory? No. Then you hate God. Do you sin? That's hatred against God. Are you forgiven, redeemed? Well, I don't know anything about that. Then you're at enmity with God. You're not reconciled. You're not at peace. And on and on we can go, right, in applying the gospel. 
No, we have all gone our own way, Isaiah says. Why are we wayward? Because if we're honest, we are wretched, right? We are wretched. That's why we are wayward. That's why we go astray, because of what we're like inward. Our inward nature expresses itself outwardly. We are sinners by nature, and we are therefore sinners by practice. Like sheep, what are they like? They're stubborn, they're stupid, right? Notice that's how you are characterized and I am characterized. We like sheep. Sheep that are stubborn. We do our own thing. We go our own way. You know the interesting thing about sheep is if you ever look on a hillside and you see sheep there and there's mountains and crags, if they get themselves into trouble, they can never extricate themselves by themselves. They're stuck until someone comes to help them. Sheep are, are like that. They just wander off. Well, what's over there? It looks green over there. And off they go and they may fall into a, a crevice or whatever it is and then they're stuck. Can never escape. Have no power in themselves. Or we, like that, like sheep, like those sheep, cannot extricate ourselves from this danger. So sheep need saving. Isn't that what we read in John 10? Do you know how many times in John 10 Jesus said, not just I'm the good shepherd, I lay down my life for the sheep. For these stupid, foolish, stubborn, rebellious, wayward, transgressing sinners, I lay down my life in their place. The sheep. Calvin says, all of us would have perished unless Jesus came and brought deliverance. How beautiful that is. How simple that is. All of us would have perished unless Jesus came and brought deliverance. Ah, my dear people, without Jesus we are undone. We are ruined. Without Christ, we have nothing. If you are without Christ this morning, you are ruined. You're still in ruins. Still in your sins without Christ. You need the shepherd. You need the sacrifice. You need the substitute. Notice at the end of verse 6, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And when you read that, those verses, you get this, this language that goes like, we, our, us. We, our, us. Particular language. Language of the sheep. Or we like sheep. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us. Us. I read these verses and I see myself here. Do you? Do you see yourself with your transgressions? With your iniquities? I mean, do you, do you identify with this appalling description of yourself and then what God has done for you in giving you the servant in your place? So that all of your sin behind you and all of your sin in front of you and all of your sin now washed, forgiven. The guilt of it Penalty paid. And you go free. Freedom. Spiritual freedom from spiritual bondage. There's nothing like it. It's the gospel. Right? The gospel of Jesus. So Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep, John tells us. 
What I love about that passage, John chapter 10, it tells me that Jesus loves me, Jesus laid down his life for me, and Jesus leads me to green pastures, to water that is the water of life. He loves me, he laid down his life for me, and he leads me. That's the good shepherd. He's in front, and I follow him. He knows his sheep by name. He calls to every one of them, and they come to him, and they follow him. Wherever he goes, they follow. That's what sheep do, by the way. They follow. And when they are led, they are followed. They follow the one who leads them. Are you following the shepherd? Do you ever think about that when you wake up in the morning? What is your life revolving around? Surely it revolves around Jesus as the Lamb of God who was slain from before the foundation of the world as it were for us. The plan of God, the purpose of God. And I comfort myself with just two thoughts. My guilt is assuaged by the grace of Christ. I'm guilty, but His grace comes. And though He was rich, if for our sakes He became poor, so that we through His poverty might become rich. We are rich, aren't we? With the grace of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for these thoughts from Isaiah's prophecy. We can scarcely do justice to what is described here. But we pray that God the Holy Spirit would take these words and put them in our hearts and minds and cause us to be grateful and thankful that our Lord Jesus Christ did such things for us. Thank you that in Christ is life, in the cross is redemption and the forgiveness of sins, deliverance. And so we pray that we might each of us know this forgiveness and thereby know peace with God. Thank you for your word. Now speak to us, we pray from it. We commit ourselves to you now and pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now,